Welcome to the Power of a Woman podcast. This podcast is centered around helping you reclaim and finding yourself as a woman, connecting with how you want to feel in your life and body, and changing the narrative on not only how we approach health for women, but also how we treat ourselves and the stories that we tell ourselves. I'm so grateful you're here. Let's dive in. Welcome back, guys. So I'm here with Todd Anderson today. So not a female. (laughs) I'm with Todd. I've known Todd since Equinox for the last uh, few years, but Todd has been traveling and doing seminars on sleep. And I thought this would be a really great conversation for us to have, because this is something that I probably annoy the crap out of my clients talking about all the time. So I thought, why not have an expert in it come in to really talk more about why sleep is so important, things that can really be impacting your sleep, and then the things that you can start working on now to help improve your sleep function and where that can transfer. But First, I'm going to let Todd introduce himself and where he's at and what he does now and what's kind of led him there. Yeah, thanks. Good to see you. Uh, Thanks for having me. But yeah, so I mean, basically, I would say um, me and my wife wear a lot of different hats as far as the day-to-day goes. But, you know, we spend most of our time with our business called Synergy Dryland, and we work with swim teams, especially, you know, really high-level swim teams that have people that are, you know, going to Olympic trials and and trying to make Olympic teams and a wide variety. But you know, we're really looking for high performance. And, you know, beyond that, we work with quite a few different fitness companies, but one of my main passions is sleep. And, you know, that's been, man, I've been passionate about that since probably like really deep diving, you know, around eight years ago, maybe. And um, yeah, so, you know, I, I give a lot of seminars to companies or swim teams or football teams or try to work with specific athletes um, sleep strategies and really, you know, maximizing, maximizing performance. But at the end of the day, you know, maximum performance, most of the time means maximum health, longevity, all the good things that come with that. Yeah, absolutely. So eight years ago, what led you into being more passionate about the sleep aspect when it comes to health? You know, I had some stuff happen. We, you know, we went through a lot of transition, obviously my wife being a, you know, high level athlete, uh, I think transitioning out of that was tough. We, we both went through it in different ways and there was a lot of ups and downs. And I think that I got to a point where I wasn't working out the way that I usually did. You know, I, I wasn't as motivated. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, in, all in all, not in the best place physically, mentally. And I think that when I started diving into why that was sleep definitely played a big factor. And then, you know, I kind of started to align all these things and, and focus on, okay, I never want to feel like that again how can I, you know, really take each bucket and maximize, you know, optimize the things in each bucket. And the more and more I dug into it, the more and more sleep seemed like it was popping up in studies here, there. And really, I think we're just touching the surface, but, you know, it really does seem to be the foundation of health and longevity. You said a term in there, you said motivated, right? And that's, people say it all the time. People say like, well, I'm just not motivated to do this right now. And there's obviously layers that comes into what motivation actually is one of those being more like, are you operating out of alignment? Do you have like a specific path that you're aiming on? Right. And I think when you, you lose those paths or you're not aligned, then motivation can go away. But one of those can also be how you're feeling. And as much as you try, you can push yourself through, but at some point you're going to hit a wall where you can't continue to push through if you're not feeling good. And we know sleep can obviously impact how we're feeling, but for an overall, like general, overview for people, where does sleep impact daily function and how they're feeling? I mean, I don't know if you could even talk about anything that doesn't impact. Uh, 
But if you were to pick, you know, if you were to bucket things, you know, our day-to-day normal rhythmic type functions like sleep, eating, breathing, all these different things. I mean, breathing could be debated, but, you know, foundationally sleep across the board, I mean, impacts things 100% across the board. And I would say it's almost like the, the body's only form of reset. You know, if you think about evolution, it'd be, you know, especially as we were evolving, it would be very, very beneficial for us not to sleep as far as the survival uh, mechanism. So the fact that we need the amount of sleep we need and the fact that it's still here and with us over the years of evolution shows just how important it is because mother nature does a pretty good job of being efficient, keeping people, keeping, you know, organisms alive and, you know, shutting your eyes for eight hours is, is a tough task, but you know, we can't live without it. I tell my clients all the time. I'm like, if you go back to primally, right? Like how your body was made to function, there's only a point where you can like work against that for so long before it's going to start to impact you, right? The one week of you not sleeping, isn't going to make that big of a difference on long-term health. But when you're chronically cutting it short because you're scrolling your phone or watching TV or staying out late, even better, you know, having alcoholic drinks at night, adding that in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're making- about those. <laughs> yeah. I, th- so I think often- that, like I think sleep, I think when you're talking about motivation, it's, it's often like motivation and momentum, I think, are often confused or at least they go hand in hand. And I think that. Like when you're not feeling good and you start to do the right things and you feel a little bit better, like that builds a ton of momentum, right? Yeah. And I, th- I think that's what, you know, that's what leads to, you know, substantial weight changes and life changes and you know, these these complete overhauls of, of your life. And I think that the one way to make sure that you stop momentum is not sleeping. Yep. Like, let's talk about like a train, you know, uh, you have a train going 60 miles an hour, you can put almost anything in it and it'll run it over, but if it's not moving at all, you can put a pencil in front of it and it will stop it. So I think that's exactly what sleep does, especially when someone's in like a bad place and they're trying to build momentum. You know, it's very easy to slow that train down. Yeah. We undervalue the simple things or the things that should be a part of our everyday life and the impacts that they can make on how we're overall feeling, but not just that, the results that we want to see too. Yeah. So when it comes to things, we talked about it a little bit, right? Things that can impact sleep. And the quality, where do you see a lot of people disrupting their own sleep? What's the most common things that you see? And then we can kind of get into like what we can do instead later, but. Yeah. I mean, I I think weekends in general for for multiple reasons really tend to throw people off. I think I would say that of of the most common things, weekends and then um, like sleeping environment, just the relationship with their bedroom and, and sleep in general. And, and I would say that would be a trend over the next couple of years. I think there's all this data on sleep and it's awesome because people finally want to learn and we're realizing how important it is. But the one thing that seems to be like chronically ignored right now is the psychology of sleep. And when you look at all this data coming out, there's tons of facts on what affects sleep, but no one's really talking about, okay, how do I feel about sleep? What am I thinking about when I wake up in the middle of the night? What type of actions do I have to take to make sure my environment is safe and I, I feel like I'm relaxed and I, and I have this routine down? And I think, you know, all these companies, Whoop, Oring, all this stuff, they're doing a great job. We're going in the right direction. But a lot of it can actually go the other way where this data, you know, you, you learn so much. And I'm guilty that sometimes you learn so much, right? You know how important sleep is. And then you have a night where, like, for example, me tonight, not, not a good plan. I have a flight at 930 tonight. I'm going to go to bed at midnight. I have to get up at like six in the morning. 
And I start thinking about all the negative things that are going to happen. But that could easily impact me falling asleep tonight. So I think the psychology aspect is going to come into play really big in the next couple of years. The analysis paralysis, almost. For sure. Absolutely. I, I tell women all the time, I'm like, you stressing over that cupcake that you ate is way worse than the cupcake that you ate. <laughs> or same thing with sleep. Yeah. So when someone is looking to set up a better sleep environment, what are some of the things that they should be prioritizing? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing is using your bedroom for literally, you know, two things. One is sleep and two, you know, I don't think we want to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> I'm not an expert in that. So, you know, that that's how it goes. Like you, you have to set boundaries and your body has to understand that that's a place of rest, relaxation and a safe subconscious space. Right. And that goes down all the way to text messages playing video games for kids, watching movies, all this different stuff, you know, in our, um, you know, ancestry brain or, or our, you know, reptilian brain, as they say, like any task is going to be, is going to be interpreted as a threat. You know, it's, it's, a, it's something to do, right? So even though you might enjoy texting, you're on social media, it's, it could be pleasurable. It could be fun, whatever it may be. It's still a task. So subconsciously our brain interprets that as something to do. And that no longer becomes a place of rest. That becomes, you know, a place where we we have assignments and we have to accomplish things. And now our brain starts thinking about those things and we go down a whole rabbit hole. So I'd say where you're doing these things and how you're spending your time throughout the day. And you shouldn't be hanging out in your bedroom, especially for kids, teenagers, all that stuff. You know, you want to make it almost like a sanctuary where when you go in there, your body knows it's time to shut it down. Okay. And also, obviously, the light is a huge factor. I mean, light's a huge light's a great weapon as far as like resetting things, you know? So I'm sure everyone's heard about blackout shades, but you know, you just don't realize how much even a small amount of light can have a huge impact. They've done studies and even the light from like an old school led night clock has, has affected REM cycles. So let the less light, the better, but you also have to pick and choose your battles. So it's not an all or nothing thing. So even, you know, turning on the the blue light block on your phone over time can have a big impact. So it's not like people need to freak out and, cut all the light out in general, but I think in the middle of the night, especially, you really want to make sure the light's limited. It's funny you say that. I sleep with the eye mask because until our house is done being built, we can't change some of the things in our windows. And I'm so used to using it now that it's almost like it's become my safety thing. Like I almost can't sleep without it. We traveled once and I had forgotten it in my suitcase and couldn't find it. (laughs) And I slept horrible that night. I kept waking up, but our room felt really bright. It's, I mean, those are awesome. It's, It's a great, I have a, I don't know why I have a hard time with the comfort of them, but I, I think I haven't given it enough time, but with a lot of the athletes we work with, we recommend that because it, it, you know, when you're going to a competition, you want to eliminate as many variables as possible. Well, that's one, right? Hotel rooms are all over the map. There's crazy studies on even just sleeping. You have the best hotel bed there is, but your REM cycles are going to be significantly decreased. So that's one thing you can at least control. You don't know what the blinds are going to be like. So you have that one consistent piece at least. So darker room, right? Make it a more of a safe space. What about temperature of your home? Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, I would say over this past year, research wise, that's become super prevalent. Clearly that the temperature and the fluctuation of the temperature are having a major impact in, in specifically cooling down your body temperature. If, if your body can, if your body does not cool down, your body will not fall asleep and it definitely not will get, it will not get into those deep sleep cycles. So, you know, it has to be comfortable, but 58 or sorry, 65 to, to 68 degrees is usually what we recommend. Energy bill is not great if it's hot in the summer, but you know, definitely worth it. You know, I think that's a pretty good 
zone, you can always work your way down, but you're still going to have covers on, obviously. It's more about just your body's ability to cool down if you have to throw a leg out or whatever it may be. You don't want to be freezing, but it's better to be on the cold side than the hot side for sure. Any woman who's ever had hot flashes already knows what you're talking about when it comes <laughs> to the heat. So, yes. I can't fully relate to that, but. <laughs> yep. It's funny. So, noise, white noise. Yeah. Our kids have it. We've got a almost five year old and a two year old, and they sleep with it. But I never slept with it before. But now, because I've become so adapted to hearing their white noise through our monitor, now I can't sleep without it. So, we run something in our room. Is there any truth to actually like supporting sleep cycles with white noise? I think that there's not a ton supporting it is straight up. Like if, if I don't listen to that and I start listening to ambient noises that I'll sleep deeper, but I would, I would lump that in the psychological category of, okay, this is part of the routine. And then your, your mind subconsciously, you know, intertwines that with that sound. Like now it's bedtime. Let's start to shut down and get into a deep sleep. So Absolutely. I would say in the routine wise, I don't know if they necessarily studied like if someone's done it for a certain amount of time and then stopped or, or, or what that could be. But I also think that if there is noises around you, that's a way to almost drown them out. It's never been shown to decrease sleep in any way or decrease REM cycles. So up to a certain volume, I think it can be really good if you live in the city, like we have a train by us, stuff like that. I think it probably deter you from getting woken up. Makes sense. We're talk- I was talking to somebody the other day about sleep cycles because she was saying, she's like, I've never, she goes to bed at like midnight. And I was like, we've got to start getting you to bed and like gradually moving that. And she's like, but I've never gone to bed earlier than that. And she's like, I've just always been this way. And I'm like, well, one, it's the worst thing to start with, right? I've always done it this way type of a thing. But two, when it comes to sleep cycles, I see a lot of like, all right, sleep time should be 10 PM to 6 AM. But then from a woman's perspective, right, our hormones shift and in certain stages of our woman's hormonal cycle, they actually need an average of 45 more minutes of sleep at night. So where should that time frame really be prioritized when it comes to sleep? And then is there any truth to like what's happening in those sleep cycles during that time frame? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think that so you're, you're I guess let me. So you're asking if, it, let's say you are trying to add on 45 minutes because you need it at a certain time of the month. Yeah, but where should someone be like setting a bedtime? Well, it really depends on, you know, everyone is slightly different. There are some people that respond better to, you know, going to bed a little later and waking up a little later. You know, I would say ideally to make it easy on yourself, if you could align that with the sun, it would be really easy as far as when the sun goes down and and, and rises, if you could align that. But a lot of it's routine. And I would say a lot of it, you people have to just, you know, work around what their schedule is. Uh, in a perfect world, I would say whenever, I don't want to give a specific time. I think it's more about consistency, but I will say, you know, letting it get dark before you start to try to go to bed is, is a really good thing. And oftentimes, like for me personally in the summer, I tend to wake up really, or not really, but early. So I'm trying to go to bed while it's still light outside. And that's definitely a challenge. On the flip side, if you're trying to add some extra sleep time, you know, let's say you normally sleep from 10 to six and you know, you're going through something or you're trying to recover from something you need to add extra sleep. It's usually better to try to add that sleep on in the morning, like at the end of your night. So when, when I look at studies, like let's say you're only going to sleep five hours one night, right? So as you go through the night, there's sleep cycles, your body gets into deeper and deeper sleep and and the REM cycles happen more and more often. So like the second half of your night might have twice as many REM cycles as the first half. 
But what's interesting is, and we look at studies, is like if you're only going to sleep five hours and you only sleep from 10 to three in the morning, you only get that light sleep, like, uh, you know, your, your first four stages of sleep. You don't get as many REM cycles just like you normally would in in the uh, in that normal time frame. Now, if you only sleep five hours, but it's from like 2 a.m. to 8 a.m., so you just take the second chunk of the night, you're only getting the REM cycles like you would and kind of losing some of that non-REM sleep that you normally would get the first half of the night. So what's interesting is no matter how you shift it, it's not like you are working through like the first lighter stages of sleep in the beginning of the night, no matter what time you go to bed, it seems to be synced up with your circadian rhythm and what time it is. So a little bit more bang for your buck on the second half of the night, as far as the brain and like some of those clearing out those, you know, um, enzymes and some of the waste products from all the, the uh, processes happening throughout the day. So I would say if you're going to add on, add on to the morning, that was a long answer. No, that's a really good answer. The, I think a lot of times trying when you're so used to going to bed at a certain time, right. To just all of a sudden shift that in the second stage of a hormonal cycle is really challenging, especially if your bedtime normally is already 9 PM. And then you're trying to go to bed at eight 30 or eight 15 and it's still light outside. Yeah. It's going to be a lot harder. The unfortunate thing is normally the morning is a less flexible time for, you know, your average American. So yeah, uh, going to bed earlier can be substantially harder than, than sleeping in a little later. So in that, would you prioritize, let's say sleeping in for let a week out of the month meant skipping some of your workouts? Would you tell someone to prioritize their sleep over a workout? For a whole week? Yeah. Man. <laughs> so such a tough black and white answer. I know. I think that, I think there's a lot to dive into as far as how much sleep they're getting and how when the work ins- when their workouts are taking place, how motivated they are, how, how much energy they have, you know, I think oftentimes I would I would venture to say, and this would be going out on a limb, if if I was working with somebody and they were having a hard time getting their workouts in because they're fatigued, underslept, I would have them prioritize the sleep, and I would bet you they had a pretty good amount of energy by the end of the week, and maybe they could work out in the evening or they were a lot more motivated to work out, you know, at a different time of day. Now, not, that, might, that might not be feasible depending on the situation, but yeah. I, would, I would take that risk. And even beyond that, you know, I think that the brain benefits, the cardiovascular benefits outweigh, you know, if it's significantly impacting their sleep, like if it's cutting a huge chunk off of it, it it's definitely worth it. Even from, you know, body composition standpoint, you know, it's definitely worth prioritizing. So I would say yes, but it depends how much, you know, if it's, if it's someone that's like, I got to work out before work and it's going to cut two, three hours out of my night, there's, you, you got to find a different route I, in no way. Is that worth it? Yeah. Context, right? So the context in which they're doing it. For yeah. Sure. I think, you know, when we look at sleep too, one of the biggest things that I hear from women a lot, especially if they're a mom is, well, this is my only time to myself, right. Or this is my only time that I get to like mindlessly do things. And one of the things that I'll try to have the conversation of is you just said like mindless, right? It's mindless time, not mindful. But if you're trying to replace mindless, let's say somebody watches TV at night and they know it's disrupting their sleep pattern, but they need to have something. 
if is it healthier to go to like reading a book or journaling or something like that, even though it still could be a task versus having the stimulation of a TV? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, you're really doubling up with the stimulation of a book or, or I'm sorry, a TV or a screen or something like that, just from a, you know, the energy the light's providing. But a book can be relaxing too, right? So I think that it's all the interpretation of how you respond. Like me personally, sometimes I look at a book like a task because, you know, I probably had some some messed up memories from when I was like six years old and had to read 37 pages on a Tuesday night. But I think that it, if that's something you enjoy, it can be really good. Same with journaling. But on the flip side, I will say you have to pick and choose your battles, right? So like from for my personal example, like my wife and I love to watch an episode of something at night. Do I know that the screen is on and it's pretty close to my bedtime? Yes. But, you know, we'll try to watch it in the living room. That's one thing, not in the bedroom. I'll wear blue light blocking glasses, possibly. You know, I'll limit the effects it has. But I think sometimes you do have to make a choice of like, okay, what's living? What are the non-negotiables? You know, there are some things that are worth it, right? For example, if you're going to have a drink one night, it might be worth it, the health effects, to have a good social night and have fun, right? So sometimes I think you, you don't want to be, you know, neurotic about it, but you got to pick and choose your battles for sure. So if it's something you really enjoy and it makes a huge difference, I think you try to mitigate the risk and, and make it as good as it could possibly be. It's a good idea. It's more the consistency, I think, more than anything, right? Or the 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 structure of how things are being performed that can yeah, play a role. For sure. Except, you know, the whole wine, the the wine habit at night becomes that's a that's a whole different conversation, I would say, as far as routines go. Yeah, I usually will tell women, I'm like, listen, I love a glass of wine, but you are one, not only impacting your hormones when you're doing it that often. And two, you're not going to sleep as well. So you've got a double whammy on your hormonal function and how you're feeling. And if you could probably shift one thing and just took out alcohol and slept a little bit better and didn't change anything else with your nutrition for a little while, you could see significant impacts just on that alone. Yeah. What's wild is like, they just, they did a study, I think it was at Florida Gulf coast, but, and this was college kids. So you got to realize college kids get into REM cycles, extremely easy, right? They're almost like primed physically as far as sleep goes and they had kids just have two drinks before bed so two five ounces five ounce glasses of wine or 12 ounce uh beers and they found just two drinks you know the average REM, the average amount of REM sleep in a night's like two and a half hours give or take that's what these kids were at so in two drinks they dropped down to an hour and 30 minutes so almost you know 60 percent they only had 60 percent of their normal REM sleep just from two drinks you got to six drinks and you had absolutely no REM sleep. Four drinks, I think you had 30 minutes. So you think about that, you're even one drink a night, you could have a significant impact when you start like adding that up chronically over time. It, it can it can really do some bizarre things. Yeah, it's not always necessarily the alcohol so much for why you have the hangover next day, right? It's more so sure. the impacts on everything else. I, I think the first real hit my husband and I got when we had our daughter she was our first and people would tell you like, oh, you're not going to sleep. And we we're like, well, you know, in college, we stayed up studying, you know, whatever. It's not that bad. And then I remember at the end of week two, she really didn't sleep at the end of like week two of her being home. We looked at each other. We were like, what the hell just happened? Like, <laughs> what, what, are, what did we do? And I told him, I was like, I just feel like I'm in this constant hangover. Like I just constantly feel like I'm out, out of it. And I try to explain to my clients. I'm like, that was obviously a severe 
experience of how it can impact cognitive function. Like I didn't trust myself to drive at that point, like certain things that you can start to feel go off. And I'm like, but take that on small doses all the time. If you're constantly cutting your sleep out. Yeah. I mean, that's like the best experiment you could do, you know, and, and you literally are, you know, cognitively, like you are declining rapidly, you know, those REM cycles. The reason we always bring up REM cycles, I mean, it's literally flushing fluids that clear out all these byproducts and waste from your brain. So, you know, and those byproducts are, you know, your beta amyloids, your tau proteins, the stuff that causes Alzheimer's, all the things that, that, that don't allow your brain to communicate easily are just building up. So, you know, there's huge benefits of your non-REM sleep and REM sleep, but we always look at REM sleep because when you talk about neurodegenerative stuff and long-term disease, I mean, they're almost directly correlated. And, you know, the more and more we're, re- we're researching, the, the correlation is becoming causation for sure. Absolutely. Let's talk caffeine because I know this is a huge one <laughs> and it becomes, it becomes a cycle, right? Like you're not sleeping. So you drink the caffeine, the caffeine's interrupting your sleep and it just becomes the cycle. So where do you break the cycle? And I know this can be a very different answer for people and how they respond to caffeine, but how much is too much? And really, where would you advise someone to like check their caffeine intake as sleep if sleep is off? Yeah. I mean, I think caffeine has a lot of positives. You know, I drink yeah. caffeine. It can be great for cognitive function. There's some, you know, there's some great literature for long-term brain health, but I think that the biggest thing is awareness on, on what it's doing and how long it's staying in your system. You know, I think the one thing with caffeine, a lot of people don't realize is it's not necessarily like as good at jacking you up and giving you energy is keeping you from getting tired. You know, like the, the adenosine that builds up in your brain is essentially part of the sleep drive cycle that allows you to get tired throughout the day. And it's just blocking that from, from getting basically, you know, sucked into the brain. And so what happens is like, you end up just staying up, not necessarily having all this energy, right? Like if you have a first thing in the morning, there's not much of a buildup of that chemical. So you get a little pop of dopamine and norepinephrine and stuff, but like you're not getting a ton of energy from caffeine. It's more just going to linger and possibly make you tired later. Cause what it does is it's blocking that chemical from getting uptake and it's blocking it, but it's still building up, right? It's like building up, building up, building up. And then the caffeine wears off like three, four hours later. And then it all kind of gets you know, those receptors are so sensitive, it gets taken up and then you just crash. That's kind of how it goes. So I think being strategic in why you're having caffeine is a good start. And then knowing how long it lasts, you know, the the half-life of caffeine is five to six hours, right? So, you know, I always give an example, like, let's say someone has a large, you know, coffee from Starbucks at 8 a.m., right? Which is pretty common, probably 300 milligrams of caffeine, which isn't necessarily an unhealthy amount. It's definitely on the high side. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you go from eight, let's say it, you know, one, you have another cup of coffee, right? So from the eight o'clock coffee, you still have 150 milligrams in your system, right? Let's say you have a small cup of coffee to, you know, 150 milligrams, right? Maybe eight ounces or whatever. So you're at 300 milligrams at 1 p.m. Okay. So fast forward, you know, another five hours, 6 p.m. You're at 150, right? 11 p.m. You're at 75, you know, a can of Red Bull has 80 milligrams of caffeine. So you know, that's not even that much caffeine. I'd say a large cup of coffee and then a small one at noon or, or one, like that's a pretty average day for most people. Yeah. Still having a, a Red Bull's worth of, of caffeine in your system at 11 PM. So, you know, usually like me personally, I, I try to wake up 
get some natural light, let, you know, some of those reactions take place in my brain and then have a cup of coffee like an hour or two after I wake up. And that seems to be a little more smooth sailing, I would say throughout the day. I, for a while I would get up and just crush coffee and that was like my routine, but I feel a lot better when I kind of let that settle. And then, uh, you know, I, I pretty much just do, you know, that first couple hours of the day and then and shut it down. That makes sense. I drank a, a nitro cold brew from Starbucks one time, not looking up how much caffeine was in those. Like a big one? Yeah. No, grande size. Yeah. 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 Well, there's a reason uh, they don't make the venties. Yeah. I uh, <laughs> drink it and I was telling my husband, I was like, I feel like I'm drunk. And I was like, I'm so like slap happy right now. And I was like, I really don't think I'm sleeping tonight because it was probably didn't. No, I didn't. I was not tired until about midnight that night. No, yeah. No. Did you, you probably hit a crash hard when you did though. I was physically tired, but it was in that like moment where like my brain just wouldn't shut off and I couldn't um, yeah. calm down or settle down. Yeah. Those are okay. the annoying, annoying times of trying to go to sleep. Yeah. That's what's crazy. When, like so many guys are like, oh, I pre-workout at 6 PM. And I'm like, I don't know how you do that, but you know, they're like, oh, I sleep fine. And they think they're sleeping fine, right? It's kind of like with alcohol, like, oh, I sleep so deep. Well, it feels like that, but it's not actually happening. So so with people like that, is that more of an adrenal? Like, where do the adrenals come into play? And when would you start to pay attention when someone is having sleep issues? Would you prioritize and look more at the adrenal function or would you look at something else? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you ever... I wouldn't say no, but I think the hard part is, is trying to isolate something like that. You know, I think you almost have to look at the, especially in sleep, it's such a systemic thing. I don't know if you can necessarily like try to pull that out and, and identify it, but I think you have to look at it as a whole because, you know, there's so many different systems involved in order for it to be functioning and firing all cylinders. Yeah. I mean, every, every hormone is going to be, is going to be affected. Any, any type of production, I would say is going to be overly increased or decreased, but it's more about, I would say the timing of it. Right. So like cortisol is awesome in the morning, you know, you want to spike it up and that you see to get the sun in your eyes and you want that big rise, but you know, is it responding correctly? A lot of times, you know, when we look at people with, with sleep problems, they're like you said, you talk about the adrenals, their cortisol production is way too low and they wake up and like, no wonder you have a hard time waking up. You have nothing hormonally that's actually waking you up. You're yeah. just aligned. So I think that, you know, a lot of those things can be solved by consistent sleep habits. And a lot of those, a lot of the daytime habits are just bleeding into the nighttime habits. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's funny you say the flatline because I just looked at someone's adrenal test today and yeah. it was literally a flatline of their cortisol through the I day. Mean, I, I would say, honestly, like, that that's probably more of a problem than, than the opposite. It's supposed to go up and down. I think there's thing. it's a lot easier to combat the ups and downs, right? Like there's yeah. things you can do and there's stuff we've learned and actions you can take to limit, you know, your stress responses. But when you have none, when your body's like, I'm just, I'm here, I'm existing in the morning and it's not responding, yeah. wanting to wake up. All right. You're going to have a tough go. Like those first couple hours are going to be hard and that just cascades to the next thing. And no wonder you don't want to work out and you're having such a hard time. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I, you know, I see it and his testosterone was okay. And he runs his own business and he's 
I was like, you're, you're basically powering through. And then I was like, when are you feeling this? Like, what are your symptoms? And so he's crashing in the afternoons. And, and he's like, I fell asleep at six o'clock on the couch the other day. And I was like, yeah, cause you're able to power through your day and mentally push yourself through there. And you have some hormonal advantage there. And I'm like, but by the time that hormone is shifting in your day and that cortisol is not there to support anything. I'm like, you're done. You don't have anything to push through with anymore. Yeah, for sure. That's it. There's no coming back from that. And I would venture to say too, the longer it goes on, things like hormone or sorry, hormone, uh, things like testosterone, like they're going to take a toll, you know, yeah. like, you know, we see it all the time with alcohol, but you know, that the, the testosterone peaks at like right before that last REM cycle normally. And, you know, when you're chronically drinking and, or THC, you know, you're not getting those REM cycles. So your, your testosterone production can kind of hit a real low point in, you know, as we know, that has a huge effect on energy and all these different things, all these different systems. So, you know, it just kind of cascades into everything else in their life. So you just brought up, a, I wanted to ask you about nutrition myths. So one of them was edibles, like taking edibles or smoking THC in general, right? A lot of people, because it's become, especially it's legal mm -hmm. in Michigan. People don't want to admit it. <laughs> yeah, people will. And I've admittedly, like, I'll just take an edible, right? When it was 2020 and I wasn't sleeping and I was really stressed out, I was like, I'll just take an edible to go to sleep, right? right? And it helps you sleep. But you still, I would still wake up feeling hungover or still tired and it just wasn't fully, you know, doing what I needed. But a lot of people will use that as like, oh, well, this is supposed to help me sleep more. Or you'll see edibles that have CBN in it to help them sleep. What's actually happening in an I mean, I know this could vary by the person too, but yeah, THC is pretty, pretty, um, the research is pretty clear on THC. And if you took a graph of alcohol and THC and looked at the effects on REM cycles and overlaid them, they would be almost identical as far as the themes go. So, you know, the one thing THC does do is it helps people fall asleep faster, right? It's more, it's a sedative and in the first half of the night, why it's still you know fresh in your system, it's limiting the REM cycles. You're getting almost no REM sleep. And what happens is, you know, and we see this when people withdraw from this stuff because they have crazy dreams and all they get is REM sleep. What happens is the first night, half of the night, you are getting almost no REM sleep. You're bouncing between, you know, your first couple stages of sleep and gradually your body's getting rid of the, the substances. And then it, eventually it clears it out of the substances and it's like, Oh my gosh, I've gotten no REM sleep. Like your brain's smart. You know, I've got yeah. no REM. I have to catch up. And you go into these crazy deep REM cycles. Like there's almost just REM cycles when this happens. And that's why with alcohol as well, people wake up and they're like, oh my God, I slept like a rock. Well, it's like, well, yeah, you're you're coming out of like insanely deep REM cycles because your body's freaking out because it hasn't gotten any of that first half of the night. You know, it's trying to make up for it. And so people who chronically smoke or drink, when they come off of these things, a lot of times they have to be treated for like night terrors and all these different things, because all their body wants to do is get into REM cycles because it's lacked them for so long. So it's funny you say that because I've had, you know, clients who, when we start working through things and their sleep quality starts to improve, they'll start to say like, Oh, I'm getting weird dreams or, you know, I've had more dreams lately. And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I expect those things to pick up a little bit, but obviously they're not coming off of significant alcohol or THC, but even just switching the the quality of your sleep and your body starting to get that more can you can experience it too and people you know people talk about cbd all the time and, and even the research on that you know i'd say it's a little more up in the air as far as a definitive positive or negative but they they love using this one study and the study talks about how cbd 
really helped improve these sleep disorders, which was true. But the sleep disorder was for for people who had crazy dreams and like you know nights walking and all these different things. And all that's happening is it's it was keeping them in a little bit lighter stages of sleep, so they didn't have these intense dreams. Because REM is is you know when when we have our most intense dreaming and our brain is very active. So you know all it was doing was limiting how deep of sleep they got, so they had less sleep disorders. And you know they love to market that, but it's it's very misleading. You know I would say, you know when in doubt, I would I would shy away just because there there are often are traces of THC in CBD products are very unregulated and. You know, it seems that the risk is not worth the reward in any way based on the research coming out. And they're extremely expensive to not yeah. really know if you're getting the benefit when you could be right. using something that we actually know would be beneficial to help support too. I mean, some of the best sleep supplements are are very cheap, if not free. Most of yeah. them are absence, but even the stuff that, that can be helpful is uh, is pretty cheap. So speaking of sleep supplements, I'll often, when I see that someone's not sleeping well, one of the first places I'll start is magnesium supplementation to help support them. What about melatonin? I know this can be really controversial. Yeah. So, I mean, they just came out of some recent studies. I think they're out of, uh, man, where were they out of Stanford or something, but uh, they did studies and people who took melatonin on average got 2% more sleep per night when they took it versus not. Right. So you're really splitting hairs as far as taking it goes. But what does happen whenever you're taking extrogenous hormones, right? Your body's already making melatonin. Okay. So once you start taking that, it's going to start shutting down the production that naturally occurs. And the other thing is, is, you know, when you take one, the the dosages that are given in sleep supplements are off the charts compared to what is naturally produced. But the other thing is, you know, as with most hormone productions, it's kind of a flowy, you know, gradual build on these things. It's not like a one hit pop of hormone. So, you know, that flow doesn't necessarily take place. And often people will wake up in the middle of the night because that, you know, their body kind of digested the the pills or whatever supplement they took and it's run out of melatonin when that should be more of a gradual build and decrease throughout the night. So I would say 2% is it worth it? Probably not. Magnesium is awesome. That's been proven to do great things. Uh, we usually recommend magnesium three and eight just because, you know, some neuroscientists made it in a lab and it can cross the blood brain barrier. So it seems to be a little more useful, but I will say it can be a little tough on the stomach based on, you know, what, what the feedback that I've gotten. I usually do a little combo. Like I do a small, the lowest dose of magnesium three and eight, and then more like a glycinate or something with it for people. Yeah. It can be, can be nice. Nice combo. Yeah. I mean, in general though, anytime you start supplementing, you're going to get on a train that you might not be able to get off of. So if you can, you know, eat whole foods, get all these things, you get a good balance of all these different electrolytes and things. I mean, usually, usually the action steps can go much further than the stuff like that. Yeah. It's always going back to why, right? Like, why do you need the melatonin? Why isn't your body doing what it needs to do? Why aren't you able to fall asleep? And, but I always tell people, I'm like, that's the foundational habit versus the short-term like solution, right? We can use things short-term to help you feel better faster, but we're going to spin in circles and you're going to live on $500 a month of supplements. If you don't address the foundational stuff that got you to what you're doing in the first place. hundred percent. And melatonin, I will say that I doesn't, it's not, I'm I kind of bashing it, but there's really not any negative side effects that come from melatonin that they found, but, you know, so like with athletes, when you have a big game or meet or whatever it may be, we do have them throw it in their bag because, you know, it could be psychological, it might not be, but if, you know, if you're very stressed out, it could 
be helpful to get you to fall asleep if you're having a hard time. Yeah, we take um, like whenever we travel or we're going to sleep in a different environment or something, we bring a supplement that's called insomnitol that has some melatonin in it just so that I can, you know, fall asleep a little bit easier. Because again, going back to the first thing, right, that safe environment when you're not in that can obviously play a role in your quality, too. Yeah, I mean, hotel rooms are brutal for your sleep cycles like we like when I worked at Michigan State, we helped plan out their um, like pregame routines based on what time of day the game was. And, you know, we try to do everything to limit the effect of a hotel, you know, like temperature, the light, obviously, you know, I have people taping sheets up over the, over the, like the, the, the windows, just because even the edges make a big difference. So, you know, when you're in a hotel, they've done the studies come at a hotel are just brutal. No one likes to talk about it. I feel like, I feel like it's often overlooked, but you know, you could literally be staying in the four seasons, the nicest bed you could ever get. And you'll probably have half the amount of REM sleep. It could be dead silent blackout shades, but uh, your subconscious brain is very smart. It knows it's not, not at home. Yeah, I do. Um, once a quarter, I'll just go by myself and stay at like the Townsend or something downtown Birmingham, which is a really nice hotel. I sleep awful. I'll yeah. go to just like spend 24 hours, like planning, doing things. And then I sleep terrible and I always come back and look forward to sleeping in our bed by myself the next day. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a real thing for sure. And it's tough, tough, especially with athletes, just because there's, there's not much you can do about that. And often you have to perform the day after you get to a new hotel. All right. Last question. Cause I know you have a flight to get to time. Does sleep time actually matter. And especially when it comes to like hormonal health, cognitive health like what's the actual time on average that people should be aiming for and then obviously I know quality obviously matters too right but within that where should someone be prioritizing time meaning like total duration of sleep yeah yeah so it's pretty much agreed upon with with most experts that seven is the absolute minimum amount for optimal function for an adult and so I think the word minimum like when people read that sentence they see minimum and they just kind of brush right by that, you know, like, so minimum would be the lowest possible amount that your, your brain can squeak by by functioning optimally and not six and a half, not like, so a lot of people are like, okay, I'm going to go to bed at 10. I wake up at five. That's, I got my seven in, you know, but you go to brush your teeth at 10, kind of get around, lay your outfit out, whatever it may be. And then you get to bed by maybe fall asleep, 10, 30, 10, 45, and maybe you woke up in the middle of the night a couple of times to go to the bathroom, wherever it may be. And, and, you know, you lost some time there and seven becomes five and a half really quick. So seven is the minimum. I would say most people are eight, eight and a half hours, honestly, for optimal function. And there are very few people you'll hear people say all the time, like, okay, I only need six hours. That's, that's like my money mark. I'm good. I'm hundred percent. And I promise you they're just acclimated to those six hours. Like they're not functioning at an optimal level. I can almost guarantee it. There's such a small percent of the population that can function on six hours of sleep. I want to say it's less than 2%. So error on the high side, right? If you're going to take a risk, why not risk having a little bit too much sleep? We have yet to see any negative harmful benefits from that. You know, you might be an eight hour, a nine hour person and that's okay. You know, if, if you're getting nine, you're waking up ready to go. You know, that could be a good place for you. Now, yeah. on the flip side, if you're going nine, nine and a half and you're still feeling tired, there's probably some stuff you need to work through, you know, cortisol, all these different things are supposed to be spiking in the morning. But yeah, I would say, I don't even like to give out the number seven. I think eight is probably where, where most people lie. Yeah. I don't like to tell people seven because then people aim for seven. 
I don't like people to, I don't like to tell people the minimum number of water that they need to take in because they'll just aim for that number of water. Right. So it's, I think we need to aim for what's, what's the minimum, right. But then what's optimal for you. Yeah. The crosshair shouldn't be seven. That's, that's what everyone likes to do. And it might be more, especially for kids, you know, as they're developing 16, 15 years old, you start tacking on time to that. It is okay for them to sleep nine, 10 hours, but the hardest part of the kids is they'll, you know, their circadian rhythms all over the map because they'll sleep in for like seven hours later on the weekends. <laughs> Let me know when that starts to happen with kids because I would really love that. <laughs> uh, well, it, how old are your kids? Uh, almost five and two. Yeah, you got some. You got some time. That's yeah, we do. Sure. They are. I have had people before. They're like, "Oh, just put them in bed later. They wake up later." I'm like, "Yeah, that never happens." Like they are to the top, to the dot, six thirty a.m. every morning. So do they go to bed? Do they want to go to bed? Do they they fall asleep? Do they want to go to bed? No, but we're pretty strict about bedtime around here. You're, so you go to bed. Yeah, they're going to bed. Yes. They hate bedtime. I mean, I, I literally hated it so much, but now like I'm telling my wife, I'm like, it's nine o'clock, like we gotta get in bed. So it's funny how that tide changes. We're really strict about it just because we know, right, how much it impacts stuff. And I told you, like with Lucy, we felt what it was like to not be sleeping. And she overall was actually really great. She's a great sleeper. Our son, not so much. And, you know, it's it's one, I always try to explain it as like they, you, you don't have to train them into it, right? But you have to support them and yeah. what it means to actually get good sleep. And yeah, as they're growing and developing, it's shifting all the time. So I think that would be a much more complex subject to get into. Adults are a little bit easier. So brutal. I mean, I think that that would, that's what's so hard. I think, you know, when you look at that, those transitions in life, people have kids, kind of like the, the point you guys are at, it really does show how tough it can be being sleep deprived. Like a lot of people live their day to day doing the stuff that you're dealing with by choice, you know, yeah. whether it be substance or just lifestyle. So, you know, and I also feel bad for people a lot of times because that does put them in, you know, this, this cycle of, you know, negative habits and they never really get out of it. I, mean, I have friends now that their kids are older and, and they just, you know, they were so affected by that and they never really knew how to pull themselves out of this, this negative cycle. So, you know, being aware of it is uh, invaluable. The amount of women that will talk about the exhaustion, the burnout, the, you know, the like, rage that they're feeling they like postpartum rage is a thing that women don't really talk about that much i'm like well you're you're in this stage where your body just went through an extreme stress and then a trauma however you delivered a child then you didn't recover you're not sleeping you probably are under supported and then of course you're going to get rage right you're going to get this like inability to control your own emotional response and regulate yourself because you have all these other functions that are coming into play. So it's not about, you know, why do I have this? It's more so looking at like what's going on in my body and how can I support myself so that I can function the way that I'm supposed to. Oh yeah. I mean, they did, they, they did a study on uh, eight hours and eight and a half hours sleep versus five and a half hours sleep. Someone that had five and a half hours of sleep was seven times more likely to feel lonely, five times more likely to feel helpless, which those are pretty powerful. Yeah. That's not like I'm a little sad, like helpless. I mean, that's, that's about as low as it gets on the totem pole. So, you know, mental health and taking care of yourself and sleep hygiene, you know, couldn't be more intertwined. And I don't think that's actually been spoken enough about. Um, there isn't one psychiatric disorder that's to this day that has normal sleep patterns, right? So that's pretty powerful. And I think that should be looked at a little more closely. Yeah. I really struggle with listening to the, like, and I know it's moms more so, but like the mommy, like 
wine culture or like struggle culture of like, oh, it's like a, a victim to it. And yes, there are challenging aspects of it for sure. But you're also making it harder on yourself when you're drinking wine at night and not going to bed and sitting up scrolling your phone and not choosing to do things that you know could be making you feel better and help you respond in raising and supporting those situations a lot better. Like you're raising a human who doesn't have the ability to regulate their own emotions. So you have to support them or otherwise you're not going to have the ability to regulate your emotions. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, you really can't be the best version of yourself when you're, you're making those choices consistently and just on a physiological perspective, you can't be the best version of yourself. I mean, not only that is it's an age, you know, accelerator. So, you know, if that, that might motivate the moms a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. So wrapping it up, I think the biggest things are right. Set the right sleep environment. Make sure it feels safe. Probably take the TV out of your room. Take your phone out if you can. It's not your alarm, right? Obviously be realistic about what you're doing and don't drive yourself crazy. But thank you so much. And then as far as contacting you, people have more questions about the things that we talked about. What's the best way for people to reach you? Yeah, I mean, Instagram, any social media, whatever it may be, just Todd Anderson, I'm on there. Um, I love answering people's questions, just, you know, helping them out. It's not like I'm trying to charge people for every tip I give or anything like that. But, you know, I generally do love sleep and love helping people, you know, and, and have a pretty good network. If, if you do have something going on, I'd love to help and at least point you in the right direction uh, if I can't figure it out. Awesome. I will put this in the show notes. So if you're driving, please don't try to do that right now. Thank you. Have a good flight. Awesome. See you later. Good to see you. And that's it for this episode on the Power of a Woman podcast. If any part of this episode resonated with you, I would greatly appreciate you giving it a review, sharing it on your social media, and tagging me for another woman who may need to hear it too. If changing the narrative is something you're ready to take action on, my coaching programs are set up to help you do just that. We will address the nutrition, movement, lifestyle, stress, gut health, and hormonal needs that you individually have as a woman so that we can help you feel your absolute best and own your power too. Connect with me on Instagram at Brooke Razzie or head over to my website at brookrazzie.com to learn more.